Mission Creep, fresh and frank voices in global development. I felt like smashing my glasses there. You have a true friend down under. Welcome to another episode of Mission Creep, fresh and frank voices in global development. I'm Brendan Rigby, the one of the co-founders and managing director of YDEV. And as usual, I'm joined by Carly Steffen of the Centre for Social Change up in Brisbane. Carly, how are you? I'm well, thanks, Brendan. How are you? Well, well, and I hear that you're recently overseas. Yes, just arrived back from Fiji. Quick trip. It was just a, a week long, but I'll be in and out of there for the next six or seven months. So hopefully we'll... We'll be able to do a few mission creeps while I'm there, depending on internet quality. But uh, yeah, some exciting work in Fiji. Fantastic. Well, we hope to hear more about it on the podcast. And we are also joined by Wei Yo, the founder and managing director of OIC, the Cambodia project. Wei, how are you? I'm good, Brendan. How are you going? I'm well, mate. I'm well. Are you back from anywhere recently? I'm back from... Uh, all over the place, but I'm back in Cambodia now, and like Carly, hope we can continue to creep um, while I'm here, despite <laughs> poor internet connections and many other issues. <laughs> Good, yeah, maybe we can kind of change the connotations of creeping. <laughs> Make creeping a thing. <laughs> As always, we've got three fantastic and really interesting topics to talk about this evening. First up, we're going to be talking about the completely selfish and non-altruistic reasons we work in international development. Then we're going to be talking about the funding application and grant making process and whether or not that creates power imbalances. And to bring it home, we're going to be talking about Taylor Swift, the neo-colonialist. Bit of Tay-Tay. <laughs> A bit of Tay-Tay. And maybe even Kanye will make an appearance. So, Carly, <laughs> I'd love you to start us off uh, to talk about our first topic. Yeah, this was something I was recently chatting to a colleague about while I was in Fiji, and it was basically chatting about the completely non-altruistic reasons we got into development and and why I guess we're still in development. And I think it's, in a roundabout way, I think it's really healthy for us as development workers to acknowledge the massive benefits we, we get personally out of being development workers and because so much of the time it's focused on, oh, you know, aren't you doing good in the world? And, you know, in terms of people externally thinking that that's, you know, that's why you're in development. But we got to chatting about the completely selfish reasons that you're still in development. And, and I acknowledge that for me, the reason that I definitely still hanging around is, first of all, and I think this is probably everyone's answer, is the travel. I really appreciate that. I get to travel to many amazing places and meet so many different fantastic people and get it paid for, essentially. And that brings me a lot of joy. I am definitely a traveler at heart, so, so that's a huge perk. And then the other one that was pretty major for me that I realized was that working in development, I've actually worked in several different sectors uh, you know, whether it's climate change adaptation, financial inclusion, women's empowerment, governance and leadership in sustainable livelihoods, market development, I, I, I've, I've, law and justice, environmental sustainability. I've worked in so many sectors over the last 10 or so years 
And I realised that, that I actually need that variety in order to stay interested in a job, which I probably wouldn't get if I was, I don't know if I'd committed to some, some other, I don't know, say being a lawyer or something. I mean, I'm sure there is variety in, in, in other careers, but just not as much as what I know that I get from development and learning about systems and, and the interplay of all these sectors. It fascinates me and, I, and stimulates me and I love it. Yeah, those are my reasons. How about yours? Before I jump in, I'm just kind of curious to know, in this discussion with your colleague, did either of you feel guilty no. about talking about the quirks? Because it's not something not that at all. I do, right? I, I, well, I think, I think it's actually really healthy. I think that if we kid ourselves, if we don't see what's in it for us too, and I think it's also quite patronising, and I think it's part of, a, part of creating a more equal dynamic between the development worker and the so-called beneficiary is realising that you have as much to learn from them as they do from you. And I really do think it's a, it's a useful exercise for, for people in development to do is to acknowledge. Yeah, well, one of the things that actually along those lines actually I was just going to mention, it's probably not as objectively, it's not as selfish as trouble, but the things that I, I like about development are those moments that I call stupid foreigner moments. Um, you know, when you, when you think something... Or, that sounds like a book, Way. <laughs> I could release a book or, or maybe just a BuzzFeed list. 17 moments that I've been called a stupid foreigner. Um, you know, there's sort of moments where you come up with an idea about something that you think, from your point of view, is a really good idea. And you might say, you know, I, I really think that this is something that we should do and implement it through, through doing it like this. And then your local colleague will say, well, you can't do it because there's a really good reason that you haven't thought about, but that's because you're a stupid foreigner. Um, yes. Might not say in those terms, but I, I like the feeling of, of feeling stupid. Um, because, humiliated? Yeah. <laughs> humiliated and belittled. Um, because I think, Why not? <clears throat> I think that that sort of flips a lot of the narrative of the expert coming from overseas on its head, and I think that's something that maybe is tempting to fall into that trap when you start out working with Belgium, thinking that you are the expert, you know, I've got a master's, I've got so-and-so, but actually, no, I like being told or being or feeling like I'm helpless and silly and there are uh, people that know a lot better about fairly obvious things. So I think that's a nice lesson in humility. You know, I get a lot out of it. Absolutely. I think we should all regularly seek to be humiliated in our work and development. <laughs> By deliberately making stupid comments, you mean, or just through natural stupid course? Comments. Yeah, yeah. See, I just generally stay, stay quiet in those moments, and I'm like, okay, I'll, I'll, um, I'll just listen in and then see. No, I, I agree. I think that it's, it's a, it's definitely a good thing to uh, get keep your keep your ego in check. But, way, what are some of the ways that some of the reasons that completely non altruistic, other than wanting to be humiliated and have, making Buzzfeed lists? I don't know if I'm able to say that many of these. Uh, you know, that, that a lot of the perks are associated with development broadly or with the current situation that I'm in because I think that the work that I'm doing now is quite different to, to what I've done previously. And, you know, with OIC, it's a very small organisation. It's a start-up in many ways. So a lot of those perks that you mentioned, like trouble, they're not really uh, things that I would say are, are perks of this job. But surely living in what is, to you, a foreign country, a different culture. Do you, do you get anything out of that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, there is one particular thing I was just thinking about, which is the fact that 
I'm wealthy. You know, in this in this country, it doesn't matter how poorly I pay myself, I'm still wealthier compared to everyone else. So I think that there is something, uh, you know, obviously you can travel around the region fairly cheaply. There's also that thing about, and this does kind of relate back to what I was saying about the stupid foreigner moments, where it doesn't matter what you do sometimes, simply by the fact that you're wealthy or more accurately everyone else is poor, there's almost no repercussions for bad actions. So a good example would be, you know, when you're out somewhere and then you get lost in an environment where you have no idea where you are and, you know, for whatever reason you're out there and you need to get back, you know, in another country or in Australia, that would be very difficult, very challenging and a very costly exercise. But in a country like Cambodia, uh, all I've got to do if I'm on a motorbike is put that motorbike on the back of a van. They were tied up with string. I'll buy a seat on a minivan and they'll take me back home. And in one case, for example, I can think about this particular example where we, we were essentially lost three hours out, away from home. And to do this, two of us and the motorbike on the van cost us $15 to get back. It was pretty amazing, you know. And, and it's a weird thing because it's um, that, that exists not because we're special, because we're particularly wealthy. It's just that everyone else is poor. Basically feeling like a kingpin is what you, is the reason you're, <laughs> you're loving life. I don't, I don't know if those are the words that I would use, but I would say being able to, to pay your way out of trouble, perhaps, is, or, or be able to afford things that you couldn't afford back home, like being able to afford to have a massage. I can do that here. I can't do that back home. But that type of lifestyle you're describing, way can be obtained by any sort of expat. You know, it doesn't matter what sector you're working in. So why then do people go into development? You know, why don't those same people go into financing or banking or law or business where they can have perhaps even more of those perks on an even better salary and, and, live, yeah. and live a similar lifestyle? What oh, there's no reason why they can't. Like, I mean, I think if I'm thinking about Cambodia, there are people who work here and obviously in finance and all those other areas. But, you know, for them to work in finance in Cambodia, it's not exactly helping them on the career path. You know, to work in finance in Asia, it's got to be Hong Kong. Or it's got to be Singapore or whatever. For us in development to work along, if you're interested in working up the career path, working in Cambodia is actually going to get you along that path. So it's therefore from a career point of view more attractive. So what is, what is that value then in working overseas? Because we know that field work, you know, quote unquote, is highly valued in job applications and, and by, by employers. But, you know, what do you think it is in that field work that is of value to organizations? I think it's, I mean, I think it's understanding sort of how things play out in reality. I, I don't know how much of that is perception versus absolutely necessary, you know, because there's sort of this, this idea that when you're out in the, to use your terminology, quote unquote field, because I would never use that. <laughs> um, when you're out in the field, that your understanding of how development plays out in reality is, is more accurate, even though often it's office-based work. So I think there's still a certain perception of earning the stripes and uh, getting street cred by being out here. I'm not sure if that's any other ideas. But I, I definitely think you have to have your own reasons for working in the sector and, and wanting to work in development. And that's, that goes for any sector, doesn't it? You, you don't have to be, I agree with you, Carly, you don't have to be altruistic. Indeed, I don't think you can survive without being selfish and without being non-altruistic because you know, you're entitled to, to have your own dreams and your own wishes and your own needs. Uh, it's, it's human nature. I think sometimes we get a little bit self-flagellating as in some of the old you know, Christian monks in whipping ourselves on the back 
for our sins. Puritans. Yeah, right. Um, and perhaps that is a hangover of some of the kind of like more missionary undertones of development work. At the same time, you need to find that balance between, I think, having that humility and recognition of your privilege like, like you have way, and at the same time being selfish and, and doing things for yourself. What are your selfish reasons? I'm not sure. I, I, I had to try and explain my story the other night to a room full of students, and, and it's quite convoluted going from going from one interest to another, you know, I, I studied archaeology and that was very selfish and self-interested and then moved into teaching, which I felt was less selfish. Um, but still at the same time, I, I got and I continued to get so much out of teaching and being in front of the classroom of students. You know, it's, it's more of, for me, it was finding that balance where I'm, I feel like I'm being fulfilled in what I'm doing. I'm, I'm getting joy out of what I'm doing, but at the same time, I, I can recognize that there is a contribution I'm making. There is sort of some value that I'm adding and, and I'm comfortable and happy with that contribution. I'm not, I'm not overly cynical about it. I'm not overly critical about it. I'm happy with that contribution. And I feel like, you know, education is that space where I can be happy with that, where I can get a lot out of it for myself and make a career of it, earn a good living, you know, eventually have a family and provide for that family. At the same time, through education, you're trying to, you really are trying to, and I hesitate using this word, empower other people. Uh, you really are. And, and that's what I like about education in particular, because you, you don't put yourself at the front and center of everything. You're trying to help other people put themselves at the front and center. You're at the front and center of the classroom, Brendan. <laughs> well, if you've ever been in my classroom, Carly, you will, you will see that I'm actually not at the front and center. Oh, you're sitting in the back, in the back row. <laughs> yeah, sitting as, in the backstroke. <laughs> as they say these days, I, I, I disrupt the classroom. I think, but I think more generally and more broadly, you know, if I personally find my tribe with people who work in development. I think that's one of the things. There you go. I studied policy studies initially when friends and I met, and then I wanted to study policy studies, sorry, but I was doing development studies originally, and I was going to flip over to policy studies purely to save money because development studies was cheaper. And then on my last semester, I was going to flip over to policy studies, get that particular piece of paper, and then go and do that. But there was a moment when I talked to one of my professors about going down policy versus development studies, and he said, look, both of them are really useful. You can do lots of interesting things. I can't tell you which one is better for you. But one thing you have to think about is, which people do you identify better with? People who study development or people who study policy? And it was really clear to me at that point that it was development people like Brendan, that I um, got along with much better. Yeah, big so I, I really like what you're saying, Way, that, that no matter what sector or, or department you're in, it's about finding your tribe and your people. But that can be quite difficult to find because, you know, particularly when you're an early career professional and you're trying to get that experience, trying to, you know, get your foot on the ladder, get your foot in the door, you're just kind of scrambling around and hustling. It can take you a while to figure out you know, who your tribe are and where they are and how to get in touch with them. Yeah. Absolutely, but it's all mm. part of the journey. Yeah. So the journey is more important than the destination, the as they say. With but a capital J. Speaking, mm -hmm. of, speaking of journeys, Way, can you take us on the journey of um, funding and <laughs> the grant process or the grant journey? Yeah, sure, I'd love to. I mean, this is based upon an article that I read on a blog called Nonprofit with Balls. When you go to non-profit with balls, it has um, a unicorn juggling balls. So it's nothing to do with 
parts of their male genitalia. I just thought that's an important. Uh, I'm sure it's supposed to be a double entendre, though, way. Yes. Well, the unicorn has, I think, about 16 balls that he's juggling. So he's either very talented or. Anyway. He has a lot of balls. He has a lot of balls. I would have preferred if it was non profit with big hairy balls. I think that would have been a better time. But <laughs> I, that's a long URL. Anyway, the article that they're talking about is about the grant application process and how it perpetuates inequity. And it's written in second person to funders. So it's saying, you know... Is this an open letter? It's not an open letter, per se. It's it's just a a fairly extended but well-structured rant. It's a very long letter, Um, if it is. I mean, and I think the thing is that, you know, this is obviously not a new topic. We we certainly know about the um, power dynamics between donor and everyone else and donor-driven development. We talk about this a lot. This specific article was talking about the grant application process and some of the things he mentioned are interesting. So, for example, if the grant application takes more than 10 to 15 hours to complete, then that's a sign that you may be perpetuating inequity. And I I looked at that 10 to 15 hours and I I thought to myself, I've never, ever been part of a grant application that took less than 15 hours. I don't think ever. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, he, he mentions one which took 70 hours. I, I, I can think of one where it was a month, and I think three staff were working on it approximately 50% of the time. I mean, it's just a monstrosity of 85 pages. You know, he, he, he sort of talks about how, I guess, the application process is rigid. It really doesn't help the person who's writing it. Some of them are invite-only. The process takes a long time to actually get uh, a reply. But one thing that I don't think he mentioned, which I thought was really key out of all of this, is that when you apply for a grant and you're not successful, if you're smart, you should ask for feedback because then that's how you learn to improve your application for the next round for this particular grantor or a different grantor, and that's fine. But one thing I've I've noticed working development is that uh, grantees ask for feedback. Grantors never ask for feedback. I can't think of one instance or heard one one time where the grant organisation has ever said, hey, what do you guys think about our grant application process? And that in itself seems to suggest a huge inequity. Actually, it's really interesting. There was a, just occurred to me as you were saying about the the 360-degree feedback process program in Fiji called the Fiji Community Development Program, which is Australian government-funded project. And I do know that they assist CSOs with their applications and have staff available in terms of like developing capacity to create, say, you know, robust M and E frameworks and that kind of thing, and actually, actually do develop the capacity of CSOs during the grant making process. I'm not aware as to whether or not they sought this feedback from the general. CSOs in Fiji, but it certainly appears that that something may have filtered back, and that the actual design of the program incorporated this, or, or you know either that or they've done sort of an iterative process. But certainly, very well aware of of a very accessible grant making system that's going on in Fiji at least. But I absolutely acknowledge way that I myself have been a part of many, 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 many grant making processes and. Uh, some that do take months, maybe not full time, but certainly certainly significant chunks of time. And I absolutely agree. It, it certainly perpetuates the inequity because how is a, a tiny NGO that's already, it's only just 
struggling along with a few staff and actually doing work on the ground, struggling to cover up on that, actually able to put together high-quality uh, grant. It's, uh, it's tough. There's also that topic, sorry, Brendan, there's also that topic about, um, you know, the grant being written in English as well, which is very difficult and challenging for people who, who are, you know, English is not their first language. Interestingly enough, in Cambodia, recently one of the people uh, who were giving out the grants, they changed the process so it could be written in the local language or in English. And out of all the people that I talked to who were Cambodian, none of them wrote it in Cambodian language, which was fascinating. And I asked them, I said, why would you not do this? Because surely you can write a lot more comfortably in your mother tongue, right? And the, the reason was that I was given was they said, well, <clears throat> a lot of the words that they want yes. to have in there don't exist in our language. We don't have, yes, exactly. We don't have terminology. It doesn't translate or it, or it would be one word, say capacity, would be an entire sentence. Yeah. That's what it's like in Fiji anyway. You know, you have one English word and it's sort of the translation of it is, okay, I'm going to have to give you a paragraph <laughs> for that. Yeah, there was that. But also I think there's, there's kind of like, and this really relates back to this topic, is that there's a certain expectation, particularly amongst Cambodian people who are working writing grant applications, that they must include these words these buzzwords in order to get a foot in the door. So I think that's also part of the issue here. That they, they think that if they don't have words like capacity building, like, um, you know, whatever, any other sort of buzzwords, then they're not going to get the grant, you know, because we're kind of forcing them to use this terminology, which is inherently brainless. I'm in, I'm in two minds about, about this all, because on, on one hand, I can understand why there are standards and criteria, even if they're really bureaucratic, that need to be met because if, if you don't, then you have instances recently in Australia where a particular newspaper published, you know, an apparent expose on fraud in the Australian aid system. And in fact, the incidence of fraud in the Australian aid system is something like 0.016%. On one hand, I understand the need for those structures to be in place because particularly for a donor like Australia, they need to be able to say to the public and, and, and to the politicians and to the various committees that, you know, we have these structures in place which will safeguard, et cetera, et cetera. On the other hand, I kind of come at it from, uh, you know, another angle looking at crowdfunding and more alternative uh, sources of, of getting grants where they don't have any of these structures in place. They, there's a trust with, with the community and the people that are, are applying and it's a kind of almost like a, you know, a unconditional cash transfer. That you know, you're you're the local NGO, you're the local community-based organisation. You know what your needs are. You know what you need to do. Um, we're just going to give you the money to do it. So sometimes I'm in two minds about um, how it should how it should be, if it should be one or the other. But I think we're seeing more opportunities for organisations to to be able to access funding that doesn't require such stringent uh, protocols and and governance structures and and financial auditing and insurance and these sorts of things. Yeah. I mean, you, you mentioned alternative ways of, of getting grants like crowdfunding and so on, which rely more on trust. I mean, in these sort of processes, I, I, even though I can sort of name the things individually that would be better if they don't do it like that, like, for example, it would be great if we didn't have to write budgets in their format every single time, which they also mentioned as blog posts. There are not, I, I can't really think of a lot of other alternative things they could do. Like, I mean, can you guys think of any alternative ways to simplify the process? One of them, this is a, uh, not that serious, but wouldn't it, be, wouldn't it be cool 
if in the application process you could explain your idea using Vine, you know, using a Vine, like a, what was it, 10 second video? Yes. Oh, uh, video. Six mm. What about video. what mm. about performance art? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Where's that gone? That medium has just, just disappeared. Using mine. We need. To... Yeah, performance art, mine. No, I, I like that. Way. I don't. I don't know if any of the you know big multilaterals or bilaterals would go for that. Um, but it'd certainly <laughs> be it'd certainly be a really creative way to do it. And I, look, I think there's some organisations that would be down for that. I know. Thinking of one that is global it's called the awesome foundation there is a chapter here in melbourne and i know there's chapters all around the world and you know every month they give away you know a thousand dollars to an organization in terms of the process of of submitting an application for that and the pitch you have to do it's 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 not focused at all on like your organization type or what structures you have in place this or that it's more about your story and your impact and what you're trying to do simple process yeah i i think way i think that your idea about seeking feedback from their own ngo cso community that grant makers should be doing that and creating a bit of a sort of dialogue asking you know what you know what the issues are and then and then i guess having a discussion about what what could be a happy medium struck between needing to have the governance uh, and and those sorts of stringent stringent rules in place for uh, for people to you know abide by because it is pretty serious and you're getting a decent chunk of money uh but then yeah marrying that with with a vine. the lengthy yeah with a vine yeah. <laughs> and the lengthy the lengthy process and uh often unnecessarily complex process that they put in place well if, if the governance and accountability is is the barrier which i mean 100 that's obviously important i'm not saying it's not wouldn't it be better, just thinking aloud, wouldn't it be better to have one institution that does all that, has all the governance and accountability checking, right? So you don't have to do it every single time you apply for a different grant. So that's 65 70% of the application gone, and then the 30% that's left is just your idea. Do you mean so that, that there was, there'd be one institution, institute that would just do all the background checks mm. and... Yeah, so they outsource. systems checks. Yeah, so they that, outsource that's, it that's essentially what that's essentially what already goes on. A, a lot of the big private um, contractors like DAI, GRM, that's how they operate. They they operate as essentially on an outsourcing model where they apply and they they go for the tender or the grant, they win it, and then they outsource the actual kind of programming and implementation. Mm. But what if we have yeah. one universal? This is a huge dream. One universal body doing all of I think, that stuff. I think you're talking about socialism, isn't right? That what the, isn't that what the UN? Isn't that what the UN does? Isn't it? <laughs> I'm not sure what the UN does. Well, so, some, <laughs> someone, someone, I think that we need to consult on this is Taylor Swift or Tay Tay. Yes. Uh, as, yes. As we know her, and why hadn't didn't we do this earlier? And and she's just released her her latest song and video clip called Wildest Dreams. Already. It has over 13 million views in just two days on YouTube, but it's already facing a bit of backlash, and you can probably guess why. It's probably one of three reasons. And can you, Brendan, can you please explain what? I mean, I, seriously, I had the, I watched the music video for the first time this afternoon. Can you just, yeah, ex- explain first of all why you're watching Taylor Swift videos, <laughs> and what's what the whole, yeah, what the premise of the. The video is well I, I like to keep my finger on the pulse Carly 
you know, make sure I know what the uh, next generation are up to and what they're listening to, what, what they're feeling. And I feel like Taylor Swift has kind of tapped into what a lot of particularly, you know, young America is feeling and wanting to express. And look, the video is essentially she's playing uh, an actor on the set of a film and she's having, you know, a bit of a on the set romantic liaison with her co-star but it's more the background and the, the portrayal of where she is in the video that's kind of throwing up a few of our hands. And the setting is, you know, a nondescript place in Africa, of course. There are your giraffes. It's in Africa, the country. Lions. The it's country in Africa. Africa. Yeah, it's in Africa. And unfortunately, unfortunately, it's set not in present day, you know, Africa, but it's set in the colonial Africa and she and those on the set are all very much white and they're all very much dressed as the colonialist dress, particularly um, thinking of the British. And it's quite awful because not a, sing not a single African or black person appears in the video at all. And all you see are sweeping shots of um, landscape and nature and of wild animals and that's it. That's all you get to see of Africa. And that's all Africa is portrayed as. That's all it means to Taylor and her viewers. And again, it's just so reductionist. And we keep doing this for some reason. I don't, you know, we have to be the most well-educated generation of our time. Yet, for some reason, we, we keep falling back into the stereotypes and images of, you know, of a continent, of a people, of of countries, of cultures, that is that is colonialist, and Taylor Swift has has fallen into that very same trap. And I'm I'm just wondering why this keeps happening. And I'm hoping well, things were so much better back then. Things were so much yeah, better. That's, that's right. <laughs> Clearly, yeah, that's what she's trying to say. Yeah, so it's a throwback to, to times that were simpler. I think uh, it reminds me of that that um, movie which I never saw. Um, called The Impossible, I think. Is that mm, the one? Or yeah. am I thinking of something else? Yep. Yeah. Isn't that the tsunami? Yeah, yeah, the one about the tsunami in um, in Thailand. Thailand, yeah. Yeah, it's a Ewan McGregor movie, I think. And then it's it's about sort of people who are holidaying were affected by this tidal wave. Uh, it was a true story of a family. Yeah. And then, at least from what I saw from the, um, the clip, the kids of Ewan McGregor went out and sought out children of other white families. And I'm pretty sure that's what the story was. And again, at no point during the clip, uh, you know, the teaser trailer did any sort of non-white person appear. It seemed like a very one-sided portrayal maybe of the issue. So I don't know, do we, do we want to do that because it's, it's just easier to identify with that kind of stereotype? I mean, that, well, I you know, know, like when people think of Australia, they think of kangaroos. Um, they think of Crocodile Dundee. That was 30 odd years ago. I'm, I sometimes I try and think about it way from like a purely financial perspective, like looking at it from like the the studio's point of view. You know, who are their demographic? Who's going to be their audience? And you know, particularly in such a globalized world, you know, even movies are, are, are we're also looking at their you know international um, money that is made from movies, not just kind of the U.S. money that's made. And and obviously, international audiences outside of the U.S. are becoming such a big part of of the audience and 
and of the money that's made on films. And I can imagine that's kind of the same for Taylor Swift. You know, YouTube is available to so many people around the world and she would have fans in so many different countries. Yet we keep looking for this kind of whiteness. Absolutely. Well, Brendan, first of all, I think you probably have a thorn in your side because Tay-Tay has made your man Kanye look a little bad in the past. So I think that could be that that could be playing into it a little bit. However, the whole I mean, I just, just don't I just I'm not surprised, first of all, that this has occurred. The music video that the sorry, the song is called Wildest Dreams. Wildest Wild. So when you think of wild, what do you think of? Wild animals. Africa. Oh hang on a second, but Africa's not that oh, you know, well what are we gonna do in Africa? Oh all oh, starving people, that's not very sexy. Oh, let's hark back to a time when there was a perceived sexiness and allure mm. and exoticness about it. I mean, we see this in, in fashion magazines, which I'm sure you two read all the time, but the way that any kind of, you know, any kind of safari chic, mm. it's still around guys. It's still around. So it's, it's this perceived uh, glamour about so-called Africa. Uh, and that's just perpetual. It's just what's played into uh you know, into perpetuity. I don't think we're necessarily going to ever be able to dismantle it, but I think that discussing it is the important thing. So this might change your mind. I, I read Just... fashion, sorry. I, I read fashion magazines purely to keep in touch with the younger generation. That's, That's right. The only reason. Thank you, Wei. Excellent. So go on. Pulse. So this might, change, Pulse. this might change your mind a bit. So at the end of the video, quite sneakily, and it, you almost miss it, there's a little message that says, you know, all of the proceeds from the video will be donated to wild animal conservation efforts through the African Parks Foundation of America. What's that? Yeah, so I, I went and had a look at what it is. And it is, it is what it says it is. Uh, they are, it's an American NGO that has, uh, a, I believe, seven parks in eight countries in Africa, from, from Chad down to Zambia. And quote-unquote, they go about park management with a kind of business perspective. And each park is managed individually as, as a business, um, whether that be, you know, through generating funds through tourism or through grants or through Do fundraising. American tourists shoot lions? No, we, we hope not. They're, they are actually about <laughs> animal conservation. Preserving and they have, the animals. And they have animal breeding yeah. programs and this and that. And they actually get most of their money from your your usual donors way. I'm sure they go through the grant making process as we've talked about. Um, most of their funding comes from the EU. Um, but perhaps this is Taylor, you know, sending a message to that particular Minnesotan dentist, uh, dentist who shot Cecil the lion that got everyone so up in arms about. Oh, that is a good point. Cause she was, she was sitting in front of a lion from a lot of that video. And I was actually thinking that it would be, I, I, I thought, cause Taylor is pretty, you know, she can be pretty fun at times. I thought she was going to have her head bitten off by the lion, <laughs> frankly. She was sitting far too close to that lion for it to have not taken her head off. Yeah, and look, I, I think I she kind was... of thought that was maybe perhaps going to happen and then they were going to have some kind of freak out on the set and then, you know, cut scene or something because that would have been pretty fun. Look, I think she was yeah. just firing shots yeah, right. at the dentist from Minnesota who shot Cecil that everyone got so up in arms yeah. and tears about. But again, you know, there's this kind of like association, this word association of, of Africa and wild, of Africa and animals, of Africa and, and wildlife. The video would make it seem that there is not a single living human being except for white people in Africa. No, because 
one could also, one might almost say that she has tailored this video for that audience. Excellent. That's a, that was a very swift, that was a very swift pun way. Oh, no. It's going to be a slippery slope. <laughs> you know, you've got to give people what they want. So I just think that, you know, these, these kind of stereotypes, it's sort of what people want to see. You know, we don't want to engage with complexity around Africa. We don't want to engage with the fact that there are black people in Africa. Um, you know, we want to see something that's very romantic and, and this is easier to sell. So that's probably why this kind of stuff goes viral. I, I actually think she does have a deeper, more neo-colonial agenda. If you look closely at her lyrics, bear with me. These are three. <laughs> these are three lines from her lyrics. I'm not. I didn't memorize them. I'm reading them off the screen. His hands are in my hair. His clothes are in my room, and his voice is a familiar sound. Nothing lasts forever, but this is getting good now. So I think she's talking about colonialism. You know, colonialism doesn't last forever, but it was just getting good. You know, and then. All the European nations had to leave just when it was getting good. Oh, wow, Brendan. You know what? Miley Cyrus, eat your heart out. It was her la- Taylor Swift's last video. Miley Cyrus came out in, in, with major criticism about the violence. And now it's you, Brendan Rigby, yeah. going in to bat the, it's, it's for, subtle. The, for the animals. It's subtle. It's subtle. And, and the Africa's. That's right. the Africa's. Do, you have a, do you have a photo of Taylor Swift? Swift. Do you have a poster of Taylor Swift in your bedroom? <laughs> no, of course not. <laughs> Kanye wouldn't approve. It's just a, it's just a, yeah, exactly. I was going to say it's a dartboard beside <laughs> Kanye's poster. That's right. Exactly, exactly. So I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. I'd love to thank Wei and Carly for the very engaging discussion. Thank you. Thank you. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for tuning in to this week's episode of Mission Creep. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or head over to SoundCloud if you prefer. Also joining the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag MissionCreepDev and we look forward to having you with us next time.